Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, and today I'm here with Kathleen Collins, who's the author of Study in Hysteria. Kathleen, thanks for being here with me today. Very happy to be back with you, Rebecca. So I'm so excited. We've talked before, but they've been about um, academic sort of nonfiction texts, but this is your first foray into a fiction novel, right? Right. Uh, so could you tell us a Give us a synopsis of the novel first, so everybody knows um, what studies in hysteria, study in hysteria is about. Um, it is a slice of life of a middle-aged woman, a white middle-aged privileged woman in 1974, upstate New York. Um, she is, it's a very interior, quiet novel about her, her psyche really, and, and, and what she's fretting about and, you know, some some things that she's dealing with, um, kind of a troubled marriage, a troubled relationship with her adult daughter, a lovely relationship with her young granddaughter, uh, a friendship with a young woman that she keeps kind of secret for various reasons, a little secret uh, foray into psychotherapy, and um, just a lot of in her own head. And, you know, some some things do happen in the book, but it's very character driven as opposed to plot driven. So why did you decide, like, how did this novel come to be? You've written, like I said, um, other texts, but like, why did you decide to sort of try this novel and how did it come about? I would say that the seed of this novel is probably from 30 years ago, and it's it will be no secret to anyone who knows me um, or anyone who listens to me talk about this book that it's really a book about my grandmother. And um, I spent a lot of time with her when I was the age of the granddaughter in the novel. And the, the main character in this book is Flora and her granddaughter is B. So it's it's sort of like I am B. It's not completely autobiographical by, by any stretch. What it is, is my imagination of what my grandmother was thinking and feeling and going through at the time that I was a child spending time with her. And I wrote a story about my grandmother this 30 years ago. I have made attempts at fiction before in my life. I've taken creative writing classes throughout my life here and there, but fiction never really stuck with me. I got I got sort of quickly, um, I quickly gave up, you know, and and threw out things that I, I would say, oh, that sounds terrible. I'm not cut out for this. I don't have the patience for this. And, I, you know, I kept trying, but it, it wasn't really uh, fitting. It, it wasn't working for me. And long story short, I when I got into academia, as you well know, I was expected to publish. I'm a faculty librarian and like any other faculty member, I have to go for tenure and promotion. And so I started to work on my scholarship and got really into the world of nonfiction. And that satisfied my my creative writing to some extent. And uh, I finished those expectations, let's say, you know, I got tenure and promotion. I did write I wrote two nonfiction books and then one, uh, well, I wrote three. The third one is kind of a memoir, which you and I talked about. 
about my life with television, but that was the that was sort of the segue from my more scholarly work into more creative and personal work. And I think that at this point in my life, you know, I'm in my late 50s now, and I think I, I started this book in earnest probably um, maybe almost five years ago. I thought, now's the time to try fiction again. I feel sort of a freedom to do so. And this time I'm happy to say it's stuck. I really, really enjoyed the process. And I have to say that maybe it just wasn't the right time for me in that earlier part of my life. There's something about the way we mature and change and grow and learn that allows us to do different things at different points in our lives. So it it worked out and I'm I'm really, really enjoying this process of writing fiction and reading a lot more fiction too. So I love that you talk about how we um, sort of mature and get to different points in our life and really find those things to write about. Um, because I think it's so true. We often, I think often people think, well, if I don't do it by the time I'm, you know, 30 or 20 or 40 or whatever it might be, I'm never going to get it done. Um, and so like one of the things too, that I was really interested about is, and you talk about it, sort of thinking about your grandmother, but um, writing in the 19s, right, you're, you're situated in the early 1970s. So can you talk about that kind of um, writing about that, situating your um, protagonist in the 1970s and what that was kind of, that experience was like for you? It was pure indulgence. I am a child of the 70s. I am obsessed still to this day with anything related to the 70s. Um, maybe it's, you know, it's sort of the way we think of our childhoods with a golden light and whatever era we grew up in was the best era. Um, but it so so that was completely fun for me to do little side procrastination research research trips on, on Pinterest and and just all these what stores were in existence, what was the year that this book was published and all these kinds of little research things because you know I can never let go of the the research part of my brain at all it was a big part of this book even though it really didn't have to be but also you know just for the spirit of the book given that like I said this was the time of my life that I spent with my grandmother so it was like time travel for me you know I would actually research in my own memories of things that I remember from our time together and what the house looked like and what, you know, what shows were on TV. I mean, television is such a big part of my life. That was my scholarly area of interest. So I, of course, incorporated that too. So it was, it was really, really heaven for me to go and, and, and just immerse myself in this year of 1974. And <clears throat> You know, I, I think I did the bulk of my writing on this during the pandemic, during the lockdown part of the pandemic. And I would spend my late night hours when my husband was sleeping and it was just quiet in the apartment. And I would go and time travel into 1974 with my grandmother. You know, I didn't have that time any other before or after. And I happy to say I took advantage of it. And it was it was like um it was like a silver lining of the lockdown really i do you know you mentioned uh that your scholarships on television right and that you and so i really loved um like your 
how you situated things in TV, right? So Norman Lear just passed. Um, he yeah. did, yes. Um, and, and so you have All in the Family in there and um, you sort of like situate and reference uh, about television. And so it really gets at sort of how television is an important touchstone as well and sort of continues that um, discussion that you've sort of had before. Yeah, I don't think I can ever write anything fiction or nonfiction that isn't doesn't have TV in it. <laughs> and I'm beginning to think that also doesn't have something about the 1970s in it. And and women, those are my three things. Women, <laughs> women, you know, women's minds and the hearts and souls, 1970s and TV. That's those are my light motifs. <laughs> No, it's funny because the other thing, um, fear of flying comes up, you, you know, you kind of make put there's nods to sort of women's lib at that time. But like you made me kind of want to go back and read some of those like sort of fundamental 70s texts um, in it, you know, because you're looking at them in this book as like that they've just come out. Right. As where we look at them as thinking about um how they are sort of historical markers. Um, so did you go back and did you reread these? Like, how did that sort of, how did you use some of these texts that you, like when you talk about women's, like women and women's sort of spaces, so. Yeah, for Fear of Flying, <clears throat> I, I'm sure I read it at some point, but I have no recollection of it. And so I did reread it, but any of the books, <clears throat> I do mention books a lot in this, um, novel and it wasn't it sometimes it was because I was just I just maybe happened to be reading something um you know I, I let's say let's say this I didn't set out to say okay I'm gonna read or reread these books things just sort of came ideas came to me and I would I would then reread it if that makes any sense so fear of flying was a big one um and when I reread it I was amazed and delighted that I, I had forgotten there was so much about psychiatry in it. I really did not remember that. I sort of remembered the flattened version of what everyone thinks about the book and this woman's sexual awakening and her sexual freedom. But the stuff about psychiatry was just as central. And I did not remember that. I didn't think of that. And I thought, oh my gosh, what a gold mine for me because my other protagonist, one of the other main figures in the book is a psychiatrist. The Flora's husband is a psychiatrist. So that was just like one of those moments that I thought, oh, this is this is really meant to happen, you know. And I even, you know, quoted significantly from Fear of Flying because it just fit in so perfectly. So and you mentioned so you mentioned the psychiatrist and and you've written about um a psychiatrist and and um so can we talk a little bit about your title um study in hysteria and and how that kind of in sort of that psychiatry element and sort of, so can you talk a little bit about your title and, and sort of using sort of psychiatry throughout Yeah I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I love my title so much and I remember um, I don't remember honestly how I came to it, but I remember when I did, I thought this is a great title. <laughs> and uh, one of my early readers said, don't you dare let them change that title. And it just, it, 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 it you know, adhered even stronger. Um, it comes from Freud uh, and Sigmund Freud and Joseph Breuer's 1909, I think, book called Studies 
in hysteria. Sometimes it's referred to as studies on hysteria because it's um, in German, but it was case studies of, I think a series of case studies on women. Um, and I just, you know, I think of my book as a case study on a, of a woman. <laughs> and the word hysteria is a poke at sexism, misogyny, <laughs> hyperbole, um, because Flora is not hysterical. She's a normal woman with normal human problems and normal ups and downs of her mental state. But as we all know, in certain times of our history and still currently, those, those things are considered neurotic, hysterical, mentally ill, just for being a, a normal woman. So I just wanted to play with that idea. And Flora herself has a lot of self-doubt. You know, am I normal? Am I unhappier than the average person? What's wrong with me? But also pushing against her psychiatrist husband's unsolicited diagnoses of her, which are all kind of off the charts exaggerated as well. Yeah. And that's one thing that I thought was really interesting and that I wanted you to, you know, talk a little bit about even more is that you kind of give us insight into how others are perceiving Flora, right? Like how her husband kind of talks about her and then her reaction and how she kind of, um, how she pushes against him, right? And how she handles it and how she's like, well, you know, there are these inner monologues at times where it's like, you might want this perfect wife to look like X, right? Um, to to like have your drinks ready or have your food ready, but she kind of pushes against those things. Um, and was that, like, I guess maybe my question is like, when you, you know, you talked about your grandma with Flora being, you know, or that experience, like how much did Flora like kind of talk to you and tell you this is who I am? Like how much was it like you wanted to sort of present this case study in this more, you know, like um, I don't want to say scientific, but that's the word I'm going to use right now, scientific way. Like what is it? Like how did you get at who she was? And it was all um, speculation. On, on my part, I didn't really, you know, I was young at the time that I, I was hanging out with my grandmother at the age that, that Flora is. So I didn't, of course, know what she was thinking. I didn't go and interview family members and ask of what, what she was like. Um, I based it all on photographs that I looked at in albums that my grandfather had sent me um, long after she passed away, he sort of bequeathed these family photo albums to me. And I just loved the way she looked in these photos. She always had sort of a Mona Lisa smile. She was very, I remember her being very gentle and, and quiet um, and mysterious. So it was really the mystery. She's not, Flora is not a talker. This frustrates people greatly in her life, her sisters, her friends. What is she thinking? Um, they, they try to get her to open up and her, you know, her husband is just stymied by her. And so he throws all these things, you're this, you're that, you have this problem and that problem because he can't tell what's going on with her. And so I, I didn't plan it. You know, I'm one of those pantsers writer, not a plotter writer. And I just let Flora tell me 
I, like you, you said it perfectly. Like I just let her tell me, I just kind of go into this time travel mode and, and put myself in the situation and think what would Flora be feeling or thinking at this time when her husband does this or her friend does that. And also of course, what I would be thinking or feeling, you know, it's a lot of it is me and it's, it's not completely me. I would, I, I would have to say, I'm not as quiet as Flora. <laughs> People definitely know what I'm thinking, but I, I could relate to that. Definitely relate to that, um, you know, confusion and kind of resentment about so many different things. And, um, one way of her pushing back against these expectations is to clam up and just not even not even um, engage with any criticisms or things that make her angry. You know, she would it was at, at a time that, you know, women weren't really as free to express their emotions. And so she just sort of played that part and kept quiet. And things were, you know, building up ahead of steam, let's say. Right. And you see that, you know, in, in many ways, but also like the complicated relationship she has with her daughter. And I think um, when you talk about that time travel, especially in the 1970s, um, when there were so many so much going on in the United States, sort of in the world, like at that time um, that you have this kind of like this movement from the traditional quote unquote traditional like American family or that kind of picturesque American family that we think about into more of the like what was going on with Vietnam and the war. And so you kind of really see that tension too um, with her daughter and how she doesn't communicate well with her daughter in ways that, but she does really well with her granddaughter. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, that, you described really well maybe what feeds into that disconnect between her daughter and herself because her daughter's also very mysterious in, to her and vice versa. They don't have a good relationship. They don't talk to each other openly and they don't really understand each other. And part of it is probably due to this revolution going on. Her daughter's kind of on one side of it and Flora's on the other side of it. And, and Flora doesn't really know how she feels so much about women's liberation. It's, it's so, you know, she has a tendency to want to be um, a liberated person, but it's just not who she is. It's not part of her lifestyle. It's not part of how she grew up. It's not what her friends are involved in. And it seems like her daughter is more, her, her daughter is more, um, liberated especially in the sense that she's a you know a college professor i mean she's she went for a phd she didn't finish it but she's you know that's also not was not really a thing that most people just went out and did in 1974 but as women but so there's that there's that sort of like her daughter has surpassed her in a way and she can't really she can't really access that and her daughter's not helping at all. Yeah. And you, and so you create this, so you see that tension there and you also um, create this, Flora has this relationship with um, an acquaintance of her daughter, right. That becomes sort of um, 
what she would want with her daughter. So can you talk about that choice in, in sort of bringing, um, bringing that relationship? Like, what was that like? And and why did you sort of choose to add a healthy relationship with? (laughs) (laughs) Again, I wish I could remember making the decision, but I don't, but I do know that, you know, I I put, I put Flora in a situation, which was, filling in for the receptionist at her husband's psychiatry office. So she's there alone, surrounded by all these confidential files and so forth. And she comes upon the file, which she shouldn't, it should be locked away, but it's lying out there in the open. She finds the file of of a young woman who she discovers is an acquaintance of her daughter's and kind of becomes fixated on this woman um, who she had met once. And they, you know, through a series of semi-accidental <laughs> meetings, um, they strike up a, a friendship. And this woman, whose name is Dawn, is the same age as her daughter. Her, um, what, is, what is Flora's daughter? Flora's daughter is Abby. <laughs> um, so, um, but she keeps it secret because she feels like it's a little bit, un- well, it's very unethical that she even opens the file and knew anything about this woman, Dawn. Um, But the friendship comes about in a natural and authentic way. And it's, it's more, it's more of a friendship. And there's a little bit of like a maternal feeling between her and and Dawn, but it's really a friendship. And at the same time, Flora, you know, this all takes place in just a few months period in 1974. So at the same time, Flora makes this bold, impulsive move to see a therapist herself. She doesn't really know why she did it, but it was sort of this need to do something bold and different and secret that her husband didn't know about. So she has that going on. She has the friendship with Dawn going on. And it turns out that the friendship with Dawn is as helpful, if not more helpful, than the therapist relationship in helping Flora to kind of soften and open up a little bit, at least in that setting, at least in in her conversations with Dawn, she talks about things that she doesn't talk about with anyone else, not even her therapist. Right. And what I really appreciate, one thing you do is, like you said, it it's during this sort of short period of time, um, but we learn more about Flora and we learn sort of more about what's going on with her as it sort of... Um, as she's thinking more about how her past and how different situations um, have influenced what's happening now, we it kind of unfolds, right? And we kind of see how her relationships appear. Um, so I appreciate that too, as though even though we're situated in this short time period, we kind of get more of a feeling and get more of an understanding because you sort of um, move um, back and forth between sort of the past and the present um, in the novel. So can you talk a little bit about, so one of the things, so Flora had a job, she decides she doesn't like her job, uh, you know, right, this happens right at, towards the beginning, um, and so she decides she's going to teach piano, for, or at least for a little while, and I kind of love um, the parts where she's, uh, like, we get this picture of, we get a little bit more about who she is by why she kind of likes to go to people's houses and teach piano um, and also her relationship with some of the students. So can you talk a little bit about that choice to um, have her, have her have that kind of um, 
job or be doing that as opposed to just staying like either we're keeping the job she did have or just staying home like she chose chooses to sort of get out of the house and and do something yeah, yeah she she was a social worker for many years for decades and she you know she liked she did well enough at it um but she sort of burnt out really in her probably late 40s early 50s she just was not not feeling it <laughs> and and her husband was like well then don't do it anymore you know that kind of gave her the permission it's like okay i'm i'm not i'm not doing anybody any good in this profession let somebody else let the young people come in and do it now but she didn't want to just be an idle housewife um so she started teaching piano. She had taken piano lessons as a kid. She was no virtuoso, but she knew well enough to teach people. And it allowed her to get back working with kids, which is what she had originally wanted to do when she became a social worker. Um, but it turned out to be, oh, you have to deal with their families, their whole families. And that was part of what caused the, you know, the burnout. So she enjoyed working with kids. She would uh, go and didn't have a ton of piano student clients, but she would allow them to either come to her house or them or, or go or vice versa. And she loved it when they said, Oh, will you please come to my house? Because she could, she could be a spy on their lives in their homes. And as the child is playing, she would look around the room and see, Oh, you know, get, get little pieces of, <clears throat> You know, this is how people live. This is what families look like. Just kind of indulging her curiosity, but also just, you know, how is a person supposed to be? It's kind of a question that many of us carry around with us. It's a philosophical question. You know, am I doing it right? Is is if I if I did this in my home or with my family, would things click into place? You know, why don't I feel so that I don't fit in right in my own life? Let me look at other people's lives, which is sort of what she's doing with these piano students, kind of maybe what she does with um, spying into Dawn's file and her, her life, just engaging with other people in a remote way, in, you know, where she doesn't have to go and have big, long, deep, revealing conversations with them, but just peeking in. And so that was a very satisfying activity for her. Yes, it's very fun to read. And it's fun to read sort of her reaction to the different um, students and kind of how the students and, and that it's like, even though um, these might not be her favorite students, she's going to still do her work and sort of treat them that way. <laughs> oh, it's really fun. Um, and another thing I think that I really love that you got at was like that feeling of I know I have to be social in this situation, but I really don't want to be, um, right? Like, I don't want to, you know, she talk about her husband and, and there seems to be, uh, or she feels there are these proper ways in which they should act in sort of social situations or making sure that they go to the hospital and visit those kinds of things. So can you talk a little bit about that too? And that kind of like, um, having to always present a certain self um, and for Flora and, and how that might be different than how Flora really wants to present herself. I think she knows what she's supposed to say in every situation, whether it's professional or social, but she just has this resistance to doing it. 
it's it's like an impatience um or a not not really a snobbery like this person doesn't deserve my time but sir i see how this conversation is going to go why bother it's so it's such small talk um or if she's talking to her husband she sees how he's going to criticize her and she just doesn't want to have to deal and argue with him um it's really i mean she's a classic introvert right she i don't even think i use that word at all in the book but she's an introvert she, it's 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 so exhausting for her to enter into these conversations where you're supposed to have with your women friends and but it's also depression you know it's like why why bother why bother not not getting pleasure from what other people seem to get pleasure from and she doesn't you know she just she just has never given herself much opportunity to experience the pleasure that other people seem to get from it. She does experience it with Dawn, almost almost kind of for the first time. She has always been quiet. And like you mentioned, I go back into the past and talk about how she was a quiet child, also middle, middle of three sisters, parents who, you know, were kind of strict at the dinner table and you have to behave this way and be ladylike and say all the proper things. Um, it was kind of like a rebellion for her to say, well, I just, I'm not going to say anything then. If ever, I'm always going to get criticized for everything or further questioning, I'll just, I'll just stay in my own head and let that. But with Dawn, she got to feel what, it, what you could get from it when you share yourself. So let's, as you're writing and as you wrote this, did you, um, was there anything, I don't know, surprised you about in writing this? Like, did you imagine this going one way or did you have it drafted in one way and change it? Or can you talk a little bit about that sort of process or writing or kind of the discovery um, in writing this? Well, the, the main discovery for me, or discoveries, since this was my first really prolonged attempt at <clears throat> fiction, is that every cliche that I've ever heard Ever, any author talk about writing fiction is 100% true. And I always thought they sounded pretentious and like, it, it, there's no way this can be true, but you do not know what's gonna happen until you write it. <laughs> and I know some people work differently. I mean, the, for the plotters, they do draft it out. And for very plot oriented books, you kind of have to have this architecture, but those are not the kind of books I read. And they're certainly not the kind of books I write. I just like the character, what's the character thinking and what what's he or she going to do? And so everything was a surprise. You know, I would just, because this was, this time travel situation was laid out for me in that I could go back into real places from my from my real life that I remembered. My, my grandfather's psychiatrist's office was a time I worked there for a time myself. You know, I could see these things. That was just easy. That was just me describing it. So it put Flora in that situation and just really get in Flora and say, what's Flora, Flora tell me what to do. What are you going to do now? I, I would hear other authors say that and say, that's BS. No way. That's magical thinking. There's no way. It is exactly what happens. And so finding Dawn's file Becoming friends with Dawn was a surprise to me. I had no, all I wanted to do when I set out to write this book was to try to elucidate what 
was going on with this woman, this mysterious, um, maybe somewhat unhappy woman in this particular time period. That's all, that's all I wanted. And something had to happen. You have to have some things happen. So I had some things happen. And it, it, it just, you know, because this is, this is, you could categorize this very, very slightly as auto fiction. I would say a lot of the, um, the hard work of imagination and making stuff up was taken out. I, so it was kind of easy in that way. It certainly was not an easy project overall. Um, but I think in, in, you know, I'm working on another novel now and it's, it's definitely harder when I'm not using things from my real life. Did this change at all um, how you think about your grandparents? Like in writing this, did it make you even like wonder a little more? Did it secure and like, you know, like how does it change your relationship that you have with the, those memories of your grandparents and write, write and writing about your grandmother in this time? Um, that's a that's a good question. I don't know that I thought that much about their relationship. Um, you know, again, I didn't ask people what their relationship was like. I made up all the stuff on my own, but I had so much fun with the the Will character, the psychiatrist, who um, you know, he's kind of an arrogant jerk, but I love him. <laughs> I mean, he's he's very appealing to me in many ways. He's the kind of person I would never want to be married to, but would love to be friends with. You know, just so fun to argue with and spar with and and um, have him mansplain something to me. And I would love to, you know, give it back to him. <laughs> um, but I, I don't I think that it made me I'll, I'll just say that it made me wish that I had. I, that I got either had spent more time getting to know them, which was kind of impossible with my grandmother because I was so young and she died when I was young. But my grandfather, you know, I didn't, I was not super, you know, in touch with, we lived in different cities. I would talk to him occasionally on the phone, visit him occasionally, but, oh, I bet he was as interesting as I made him out to be. And I, and I do wish that I had, known him better and spent more time getting to know him. Um, but I don't think it, it didn't, it didn't really change what I thought of them because I didn't think anything particular about that when I was growing up. Um, it's, it just, it sort of made me miss them a lot more, mm -hmm. especially my grandmother, of course. Yeah. So, so I'm guessing if she passed when you were so young, you never got to like go on a trip to Paris with your grandmother. Right. Um, right. Like, or, you know, whatever <laughs> it might be. Um, so, so yes. Yeah, so there's those elements in there that you get to imagine um, what it might be like to have your grandmother around a, a little more. Exactly. Yeah. Um. So, so you do you want to read for us a little bit um like from your book since um we're here and we're talking and maybe having you um share and read a bit would be really great. Sure. Um I think I'll just read right from the beginning. And um well I'll just stop when it seems like it's an appropriate time. Um okay, this is right from the beginning chapter 1. The day after their wedding in 1940, Flora remembered waking up feeling different, but not in the way she always thought she would or in the way that people had led her to believe that she would. 
people, her sisters, her mother, books, movies, had told her she would feel like an adult, fuller, more whole, more womanly, and connected to the world in a new way. Flora believed these things might happen, but she had secretly hoped that she might also feel, or even suddenly be, both more intelligent and more beautiful. But none of these things were what she felt or what she was when she woke up that morning. What she felt was nearly impossible to put her finger on. But whatever the elusive feeling was, it felt like one solid thing, not a patchwork of things. It was so solid and almost tangible that she imagined she could punch it with her fist and that her fist would smart from the impact. It was an early August. It was early August and she thought at first that what she was feeling was the weight of the air and the suffocation in their bedroom. But she stood up and saw that Will had opened all the windows and there was a cool cross breeze and that it was not actually hot or stuffy at all. How thoughtful of him to open the windows, Flora decided. He must have gotten up while she was still in dreamland, as her sister Lillian called it, dead to the world, as Will called it. She thought she and Will might wake up together on their first day of being husband and wife, look at one another and smile and say something nice like, hello, dear husband, hello, dear wife. But he wasn't there, and it was just as well, since Flora hoped this feeling would pass before she said her first married morning, hello. She went to the mirror above her vanity table to see if maybe the more beautiful part had come true, even if other things hadn't. But she was not surprised that she looked just the same as she had the morning before. That morning seemed a hundred years ago. Her sisters and her mother had been fussing around her at this very vanity table, telling her how beautiful the dress, worn also by Flora's mother Delia on her wedding day, and her hair and her glowing face looked on this special day. Flora believed that she did look beautiful and was pleased about the whole day, which quite remarkably went off without a hitch. I'll stop there. Oh, thank you so much. So you um, have written this. It comes out in um, February 13th, right? Um, right. So do you have anything um, that is, we'll start with this. Is there anything that's going on with this novel that you want to sort of promote or get out there? And then is there anything you're working on um, now that you want to sort of talk about? So what's going on with this in, in the future? <laughs> well, I'll say that um, I'm so grateful to Vine Leaves Press, the publisher of this book, a small independent press, um, which took it upon themselves to publish this book. So the most of, because it's a small independent press, you know, most of the promotional work is upon me, which I am not good at and which I don't have tons of time for. So there's no, there's nothing really um, that I want to say, hey, everybody go watch me on Good Morning America or anything. But I will say, interestingly, I am doing some, a couple of book events in, in, meaningful settings. One is a bookstore in Rochester, New York, where I am from and where the book is set. Miles, mere miles from the house where Flora lived. <laughs> Flora, aka my grandmother. Um, and also Ithaca, which is mentioned a little bit in the book um, in relation to Cornell University and Alison Laurie, <laughs> the author. Um, and let's see, what, what was the other thing I was going to say? You asked me, um, oh, if I'm working on something else now, right? <laughs> so anyway, I really encourage anyone interested in anything they've heard to purchase the book from bookshop.org or wherever you like to get your books. And I hope people will um, read it 
and enjoy it. And if you like quiet, interior, character-driven novels, this is the one for you. Um, I am working on another novel right now, which is a, another experiment in um, imagination, more imagination. I'm writing a story about the widow of American writer James Thurber. I'm, and I'm imagining what happened to her after he died in 1961. So it's a story about her and some kind of literary capers that she undertakes with another woman. And guess what? It takes place in 1971. <laughs> and um, it's, I'm having a lot of fun writing this and a lot of procrastination is going on, but I expect to be finishing the book at some point this year. So, you know, just onward, I'm pushing onward and in, in my new fiction writers, guys. <laughs> I love it. Um, again, Kathleen, thanks for talking with me on New Books Network, Study in Hysteria by Kathleen Collins um, for New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rebecca.